Well, we are uh, in uh, the book of Acts, continuing our journey here, and uh, we are in chapter 6. And uh, if you remember, previously in the book of Acts, <laughs> I, that uh, we are uh, still in the beginning portions of, uh, of this great a book of the Bible written by Luke. Luke and Acts kind of go together. And uh, what he is talking about is a description of after the resurrection and after the ascension of the Messiah, we have the beginning of the restoration of Israel, right? And it begins right there, uh, you know, in Jerusalem. And uh, we see uh, miracles taking place and Peter giving uh, several speeches describing the reason for these miracles. And, and of course, uh, they're all focused on Yeshua. It's all about, it, it's because the Messiah has come. The Messiah has broken into this world. And as a result, we're seeing the beginnings of the world to come. And, and uh, he quoted a variety of passages from the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms, right? And then uh, we see that uh, it was such a great message Many people came to believe, but uh, he ended up getting, getting thrown in jail uh, several times, and which gave him further opportunity for testimony. And each time he would get out of jail, he would go right back to it, right? Uh, and this goes on, uh, you know, in chapters basically 2, 3, and, and 4, and 5. Uh, and now uh, when we come uh, to chapter 6, as we began last week, we're seeing now some of the interesting things, especially at the beginning, about the, uh, the social relationship of that first Messianic congregation in, uh, in Yerushalayim, in, in Jerusalem. And we talked about this last week, about how you had varieties of Jewish people, all kinds of Jewish people living in Jerusalem. You know, we have to get away from the idea that everything was... Uh, you know, you had uh, Jerusalem Jews who only spoke Hebrew in Jerusalem. Uh, and then in Samaria, uh, you had Jews who spoke Greek. Uh, and then you had the Gentiles, you know, living outside of the, outside of the land. And, uh, and they were all the same. You know, and was all the, everybody who lived in Jerusalem was the same. You know, uh, they couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, you had Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean living in Jerusalem. Some were born and raised in Jerusalem, and others came as adults. Uh, and so you had this mixture in Jerusalem of, uh, we would just call them, the easiest way to call them is like Jerusalem Jews, uh, or Judean uh, Jews, uh, who uh, were not from other parts of the Mediterranean, who spoke Hebrew as their primary uh, language, and, uh, and had the culture, were steeped in the culture and tradition uh, of the elders. We'll, we'll say, all right? Then you had Jews from all over the Mediterranean uh, and elsewhere who lived in Jerusalem. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big city. I mean, there was a lot of people who lived there, right? And, I, and, I, and as a result, you had neighborhoods. Just like today, you know, if you travel to Jerusalem, it is basically Jerusalem, it consists of contiguous neighborhoods. Uh, and, uh, and, and so... Uh, it was then that you had different neighborhoods and different kinds of Jewish people uh, from uh, all over. So you had uh, what would be called Hellenistic Jews, uh, Jews who spoke Greek, who were a little bit more, perhaps we could say, culturally cosmopolitan, you know. And so you had varieties of conclaves of people who would, who would gather. But in the Messianic congregation in uh, Jerusalem, you had, Jew, you had Jerusalem Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And we saw last time that there was an issue uh, having to do with caring for widows. Uh, and we talked last week about how the problem was solved. And we made a point of saying it wasn't solved by forming two separate congregations. That was, that's kind of interesting. And we see how the apostles solved the, the problem. And they raised up these uh, men who have like Hellenistic names, and so we can make the assumption that perhaps they were uh, Hellenistic Jews, uh, perhaps, uh, and they were uh, chosen to make sure that the needs of the Hellenistic widows were, were met. 
And we talked about lots of applications uh, of that. But what's happening in the book of Acts is that Luke is moving the, uh, the focus a little bit away from the Jerusalem Jews and their reception of the message to Hellenistic Jews and their reception of the message. Okay? And this kind of follows, uh, you know, what Yeshua said in Acts chapter 1, when he says, you shall receive power when the Ruach, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Okay, that's basically, you know, the uh, Jerusalem Jews. Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. And in a certain respect, that's kind of like an outline of, uh, of the rest of the book of Acts. And so now we're moving, uh, we're moving toward Samaria. We're, we're in Jerusalem still, but moving toward uh, Samaria. So you see, you could even make a case that maybe even Ananias and Sapphira, you know, had been Hellenistic Jews, perhaps, uh, and here at the beginning of six. Well, when we talk about the, uh, the seven men that were raised up to meet the needs of the, uh, the widows, right? They had to be a men who were full of the Spirit and of wisdom, right, and good reputation. We said last time, that's sort of like a shorthand for what we read in 1 Timothy and Titus uh, about the qualifications for leadership, okay? Uh, and one of them is named Stephen. And of course, you see in verse 5, he's the one who's spoken about first. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We can stop there. So he's the first one that they, that they choose. So he was chosen to help with the widows, meet their needs. Okay. But now we're going to see, we're going to see that, wow, he does something else. Uh, Stephen is a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, in the early days of this restoration, we only read it. We only read a little bit about him because he dies prematurely, you know. And we're going to see that either today or within the next three weeks, <laughs> okay? Uh, and uh, and so uh, so we don't read about him for a long time. We don't read about the travels of Stephen, but boy, we definitely read about the impact of Stephen. And it is very important. It is interesting that Luke decides to add this big piece about Stephen in, uh, in the book of, uh, in the book of uh, Acts. His speech is the longest speech in Acts. And here's a little interesting thing that should pique our curiosity. He doesn't mention Yeshua in the speech. It's kind of interesting. And we'll see what, why that is and what he's accomplishing in it. Very interesting. Okay, so we read here in verse 8, okay, verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So already this is very interesting. He is not an apostle. He's not one of the 12, okay? For all we know, a Hellenistic Jew who's doing signs and wonders and people coming to faith. And remember that the signs and wonders being done, it wasn't like, uh, a meeting uh, in, the, uh, in the congregation. Uh, the signs and the wonders were done as a testimony in the, in the public places. They were, by doing signs and wonders, they were getting in trouble. You know, it wasn't, ooh, ah, wow. It was, whoa, what's going on here? Who are these guys? Right? And uh, this was a, a way of uh, sharing the good news of the Messiah. We see it earlier on, especially from Peter. But here comes Stephen, uh, this uh, Hellenistic Jew, who was called upon to serve tables. Interesting. All right. So one of the things we learned right away in this passage is that you can't pigeonhole people, right? You know, when we raise up people into our leadership to be uh, shamashim, especially, right? The shamashim are people who have delegated responsibilities from the elders. That's, you know, whatever that may be. But it has a lot to do, you know, with planning things, events, and taking care of things, and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But we, we don't choose people for that because they're good, at, they're good at something, 
like, oh, so-and-so's a good mechanic. Let's make him a shamus or a shamish, right? Uh, someone is uh, an, an attorney. Oh, we'll make him a shamish because we need uh, an attorney in our league. No, that's not how it works. Uh, it's who qualifies to be a spiritual leader. That's how it works. And then we go from there. And that's exactly the paradigm we see. So now we see Stephen uh, played a very significant role in bringing uh, the good news of the Messiah to, uh, to the Jewish people. And so we see, uh, full of grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And he definitely had a heart for people or else he would not have been one of those seven. Anyway, but now we read in verse 9, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, or freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Cilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Oh, this is fascinating information right here. This is not uh, the Sanhedrin. This is not the, uh, you know, the, the temple. Uh, this is not the uh, Jerusalem Jews uh, who came to the temple. This is a particular synagogue. So one of the first things uh, that, we, uh, that we understand here is that there were synagogues in Jerusalem and, and all over the land. In fact, in chapter 24, it says there were many synagogues in Jerusalem. Uh, in way, way later in chapter 24, uh, it says that. But this particular one is uh, interesting. This is a Hellenistic synagogue. So we have to understand the difference between the Messianic congregation and the synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the freedmen is not a Messianic congregation. It's not a group of Messiah followers. Okay? That's, that's important. This is a particular a group of uh, Jewish people who come from a Hellenistic background from different places. And a, a synagogue at that time, it wasn't just, a, it wasn't just where you have services. Okay, it was like sort of, it was a meeting place. It was a, 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 it, everything from a social to spiritual needs were met by groups of a, a Jewish people. Okay, so this is a particular congregation. Now, it's interesting on several levels. So for the first time, what we're seeing here is that other kinds of Jews are upset with the message besides the Jerusalem Jews. Okay? I don't know if we ever noticed that before, but this is like a new thing here. All right? All right. Now, what's uh, also interesting uh, about this uh, a synagogue is the name of it. Of course, if this was just listening to the Bible on, you know, on CD or something, uh, synagogue of the freedmen, that would seem like, oh, that's pretty normal because we all know people named freedmen. You know what I mean? It sounds really Jewish. Oh, the Freedman Synagogue, you, you know? But that's not what's going on. It's, it's a different kind of freedman here, right? This is a, a freedman. Literally, uh, the, like, the, the, those who have been liberated, uh, the, the synagogue of li libertines, meaning probably, as uh, well, from what I've read, uh, synagogues composed of people who have been freed from Roman uh, slavery. It's very interesting. Uh, and for whatever reason, they migrated to uh, Yerushalayim, and here they are, the synagogue of the, uh, freed, of the freed men. Now, very interestingly, there is an inscription that was found in a synagogue in Greek in the old city of uh, Jerusalem, in the old city that was from a Hellenist synagogue. And it describes... The, what this synagogue, what this Hellenistic synagogue was. I, and so I, 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 I have it here. Theodotus, son of Vetinus, priest and archsynagogos, like the head of the synagogue, son of an archsynagogos, grandson of an archsynagogos, constructed the synagogue for the reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments uh, and the guest room and the upper chambers and the installations or the installments of water for a hostelry for those needing them from abroad, which was founded by his fathers and the elders and the Simonides. Okay, 
All right. So some believe that this is actually that synagogue, okay, the uh, synagogue of the freedmen, a Hellenistic synagogue in uh, Jerusalem. Now, why were they upset? Well, they would be upset for some of the same reasons that others were upset, that you are, uh, you know, you are uh, identifying uh, uh, Yeshua uh, with God and also causing an uproar. Perhaps that's uh, what it was. Uh, but also perhaps, uh, you know, it was through this means that this message was now going to spread outside that uh, by Stephen uh, gaining disciples among Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic Jews are from other places, that this message might spread uh, elsewhere, uh, outside of, uh, of Jerusalem. And perhaps this is why Saul of Tarsus was so bent on stamping out Messianic Jews in the diaspora so that, you know, it would not spread. And of course, you know, Paul, Saul, is from Cilia, right? Tarsus in Cilia. And this synagogue uh, contained people from Cilia. So perhaps this was the synagogue of Rav Shaul before, you know, uh, he... Uh, uh, knew uh, the, the Messiah. And uh, so it's kind of interesting, uh, the, the background here, when you look at it, uh, when you look at it carefully. So here, they, they rose up and they argued with him. You know, they argued with Stephen. Stephen was considered, a, he was a Jewish person. And so uh, even though they, they thought of his views as outside of the fold or beyond the borders, what did they do? They argued with him. But they could not overcome what he was saying, they could not overcome uh, the power that, uh, you know, that uh, he had. It says in verse 10, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they got really frustrated here. They got very frustrated. And uh, we read uh, that they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon uh, him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So here, he's, argue, he's in this uh, Hellenistic synagogue. They're arguing. People were uh, encouraged and induced to, to tell lies about him. They get so angry, they begin with the due process. Okay, they grab him and bring him, drag him to the council, drag him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was working overtime in the, the days uh, of the uh, early Messiah followers, right? Uh, you got to wonder, they were kind of maybe getting used to hearing, having, you know, these, these uh, Messiah followers being drug in and testifying and, and so on. So there's, you know, that's uh, what they should do, that, okay, we can't overcome him. We're going to bring him to the council. All right. But then look what we read in verse 13. I mean, it's really a tragedy, what, what we're reading. It's a tragedy, right? And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the Torah. So Stephen is accused falsely, and the text tells us he's accused falsely, boy, I mean, of speaking against Moses, God, the temple, and the Torah, how bad can it get, right? You speak about negatively on these things, you are going to be excommunicated. You're going to be kicked out. You're going to, uh, you, you know, you're going to be put out, right? And this is what they were trying, uh, what they were trying to do. And then in verse 14, we read, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Yeshua, will destroy this place, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So clearly, uh, Stephen is the messenger, right? Stephen is the messenger, and uh, he is talking about Yeshua. And you know, as a result, uh, what do we see? We see that Stephen is persecuted. It reminds us of a passage in the Gospel of Luke. And remember, Luke wrote Acts. You have to always remember that. In chapter 21, when uh, we have Luke's uh, version of like, the Olivet uh, Discourse, right? The, 
what we read in Matthew 24, about here in Luke 21, right? So he starts to talk about what's going to happen. And in fact, it's in this chapter where you see, uh, in, if you go back to verse 5, and while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which these will not be left, where there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. So there you go, right? Uh, they remembered this. And, this is, and Stephen is evidently uh, talking about this. But look what it says if you go down to verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Now remember, you know, Luke and Acts have a lot of things in common. And basically what we're reading in Acts is the history of this happening, of what Luke is saying here, of what Yeshua is saying. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will, you will be hated on account of my name. So we need to keep that in mind uh, when we read this here. Stephen uh, was not doing anything uh, uh, wrong uh, here. Uh, he is testifying, and this is exactly what's beginning to happen to him. Okay, and then it says, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face uh, like the face of an angel. And you know, it kind of reminds you of uh, Moses, you know, a little bit of Moses coming down the mountain, you know, having uh, had this experience with God. And so clearly they see that there's something about this guy. There's something about Stephen that they, they, they can't counteract. They, they can't stop it. Uh, they don't like what he's saying. They're, they're listening to the lies. Uh, they're listening to uh, lies about the temple and about God and Moses. And uh, sadly, what you have here is people like, uh, like a mob, a kind of a mob mentality, listening to lies and simply saying, oh, that must be, must be true because they're saying it. Uh, and so now they're, they're really angry, very angry. But the high priest, uh, at this point, to his credit, the high priest says, like, says okay, okay, Stephen, I'm going to ask you a question. And verse 1 of chapter 7 is, the high priest said, are these things so? Are these things that they're saying, are they true about you? And the rest of this chapter is Stephen answering the high priest, when he says, are these things so? All right. Well, there's a major lesson to learn right at the beginning about the kind of response Stephen gives, the kind of response that he gives. He never directly answers the question. He never says yes or no, okay? What he does is he takes the opportunity to give testimony, and he basically gives a fantastic apologetic slash rhetorical uh, speech slash testimony history of Israel about what, what is go why they're upset. And basically, th this is a little different than the speeches of Peter because Peter is basically saying, this is what the miracles mean. The Messiah has come, right? What, Pe what, what Stephen is doing is... They're accusing him personally of blasphemy, okay? And now he is giving a form of a defense, uh, and it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating speech in the way that he lays it out. So a long time ago, someone once said to me, way back when, about sharing the good news with, with people, that always remember this, answer the person. And not necessarily the question, but answer the person. In other words, you don't have to take the bait. You, you know, uh, you don't have to be confined to, well, this is what they asked me, so now I'm stuck. No, this, you know, 
What is the goal? The goal is persuasion, right? Right? Isn't that true? Isn't our desire, you know? Uh, many were persuaded, we read in one place. Uh, isn't it true that when we share the good news, our desire is to persuade people to, uh, not to talk them into something, but to persuade people to, to uh, consider the claims of the Messiah, right? Not just to give people a list of, here's what's true, you know, but to persuade. That's why, this is, this is fascinating when you think about this, it's kind of a negative example of this. When you list, some of you love to listen to the talking heads on television, right? To your uh, political uh, networks, whatever they may be, right? And don't you get frustrated when a question gets asked. This, they all do. It does not matter. does not matter who. does not matter. does not matter. But a question gets asked, and the uh, senator or the congressman or the governor or the whoever it is, waits for the question to be finished being asked, and then says what they want to say. They don't answer the question, right? Because they're trying to persuade, okay, I have an opportunity to speak to millions of people right now. I'm going to tell them uh, what I want to say. Forget about the question. I'm going to tell them what I want to say, right? Uh, and that is what politicians do. That's why it's called rhetoric, right? Persuasion, right? Okay. It can be used negatively or positively, however, uh, however you want. What Stephen is doing is he is, he, he is not simply saying, uh-oh, the, uh, the high priest asked me a yes or no question. Uh, I better say yes or no. Okay? So what does he do? He gives a speech. And it's genius because the first thing that he does is he says something to show we're on common ground. It's the first thing that he does. He wants them to understand we're on common ground. So what does he do? He talks about Abraham. Who doesn't love Abraham? Right? Uh, so this is what he does. Now, so let this be a lesson. To, you know, Paul does this in Acts chapter 17. He does the same thing in a whole entirely different context. Right? He finds common ground. So if you are ever in a conversation with somebody about the Messiah, it doesn't matter who, and you get asked some kind of question that you feel like, uh-oh, I'm, I'm like on the spot, right? Don't feel like you are being disingenuous if you don't exactly answer the question. Take advantage of the opportunity and say something about Yeshua. And you know, for most of us, what the best thing we can say is, assuming this is true in our lives, that I am an eyewitness of what God has done, you know? Let me tell you about this Yeshua. You know, do you believe this? Do you believe my grandmother is going to go? This is, the, this is the best one, right? Are you saying, do you believe that my grandmother, uh, who was this, that, and the other thing, uh, is going to hell if they don't believe in each other? Oh, no, what do I, I can't say. Is it, yeah. No, you don't understand what I'm trying to say. No. Let me tell you about this, Yeshua. Let me tell you something about it, you know? That's, uh, and, and talk about the Messiah. You know, another, another great response to that question is, is this a personal concern of yours? That's another great response, you know? Uh, because I, I want to talk about something that's, uh, uh, you know, important. Are you concerned about your grandmother's destiny? You know, I don't know your grandmother. Uh, you know, why are you asking me this question? You know, uh, so we do not have to eat the bait. We can give testimony when the opportunity arises. Nothing wrong with that. And this is exactly what Stephen does right here. Okay. All right, good. Uh, so he says, hear me, brethren and fathers. Okay, so using that terminology, brethren and fathers, my people, listen to what I want. L listen to me. The God of glory, it's a great phrase, but we can't spend a lot of time on every single thing in this passage, but it's a great phrase. You know, it reminds me of, you know how I said uh, that uh, they saw his face and it was like the face of an angel, you know, that, that it was like uh, glory. And so glory is a little bit of a theme uh, here of, the, of how God is full of glory, you know. Uh, Moses said, show me your glory. And uh, God responded by saying, I'll show you my goodness. And, uh, and then the, you have the attributes of God. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, the, uh, the end of the chapter ends in glory in a particular kind of way. 
of how what Stephen sees uh, as he's dying. So it's just kind of interesting the way it's written. The God of glory appeared to our Father. Now he's going to say our Father over and over again. Our Father, our Fathers, our, 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 not your, okay? Uh, he does not see these as people other than his own kindred people, okay? And that's how we see, by the way, that's very important to us. I, we always like to say, they are us, we are them. It's not, oh, those people in the Jewish community. No, 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 that is not how we understand ourselves uh, at all, okay? Very, very important uh, to understand. Okay, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said, depart from your country and from your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from, the, and from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. Okay, let me stop and say uh, uh, something about this right from the get-go. Okay, so what Luke is doing is he is uh, writing out this speech of Stephen, okay? What you read as quotes from the Bible are taken from the Septuagint. Uh, and sometimes Stephen is going to articulate the story in a way that also comes from other Jewish texts of the Second Temple period outside of the Bible, you know, like uh, some uh, apocryphal writings. But was common knowledge, basically, in the, in the, certainly in the Hellenistic world, of the story. He tells the story in a very tight, succinct way. But uh, some, sometimes in the narratives, in the Septuagint, and in other Second Temple uh, Jewish literature, you have some uh, differences. Okay, And so the purpose of this speech is not to give us, to tell us the history, like repeating what it says you know, in Exodus or in Genesis, but it's simply how Stephen, what Stephen says, okay? So don't let, don't let it throw you that, you know, it says 70 years there, or 70 people there, 75 people here. Don't let that throw you. That is just simply Stephen relying on these uh, texts. But Luke is true in the narrative to what Stephen is saying, okay? Does that make sense? I hope so. All right. Okay, so then he says, uh, and he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated 400 years and whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So far, there's nothing to disagree with. So far, Stephen, what, what Stephen is doing in his own mind is saying, I'm going to tell the story of our people. And his goal is to be able to say that what's happening here with your hatred of me and, and your bringing false accusations and coming against the Messiah is basically part of Jewish history. And so I'm telling, uh, I'm placing the coming of Yeshua and his reception among you in the context of Jewish history, inside of Jewish history. So he begins with what we normally see as the beginning of Jewish history, the call of Abraham. Notice he doesn't talk about the faith of Abraham. He's not talking, that's not his subject matter here. His concern, he talks about two things. He talks about the land and descendants, the promise of land and descendants. And Stephen is saying, this is what we know. God has promised uh, this land and, uh, you know, and descendants. And uh, he makes the case, he says, that Abraham came, he, you know, he had no child. Uh, you had, uh, when, when he comes into the land of Canaan, it's not like everybody disappears and now suddenly this is his land. And he's saying that this is a long journey and God is with him on the journey. 
It's important to understand also God spoke to him in Mesopotamia. God spoke to him in Syria, in Haran. God brings him as a sojourner into this land and promises him two things he doesn't really have. This land and progeny and offspring. And then he says, but God also said that uh, that the, the progeny, that the descendants of this people, they're going to actually go to Egypt. And God is going to be with them even, even in, uh, in Egypt. And I'll judge the people, you know, where, where they go, where they're strangers uh, and, al- and aliens, but then they'll come back and they'll serve me in this place. And so he's saying that God called out Abraham as our father, and God has always been with not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob, and he's with our, he's with our people. And not only did he make a promise to him, he also gave him a covenant. The covenant is like what we would call like a document type of thing. You know, the covenant is like, uh, these are my responsibilities, these are your responsibilities, those kinds of things. Uh, the promise is just what God says. And the covenant actually comes in, Exodus, in Genesis chapter 15, and then given a sign of the covenant in chapter 17, which is the uh, uh, circumcision. And so uh, Stephen is saying, yes, this is the God of Israel. And uh, he called out Abraham, made promises to him, gave him a covenant of circumcision. Uh, and here we are, uh, you know, uh, uh, to this day. And then he says, interesting, at the end of verse 8, became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Interesting terminology, by the way, the 12 patriarchs, not just three patriarchs, all of the tribes, all the sons are, are patriarchs. These are, he uses this important term to talk about that patriarchs. Stephen is identifying with the patriarchs, with the people who, whom Israel holds in such high regard. Stephen holds in high regard. He's answering, this is how he's answering, the question about blasphemy, speaking against Moses, speaking about, against God speaking against the holy place, you know, speaking against the Torah. He begins to indirectly answer it by speaking very highly of uh, what the people find, you know, to be uh, very, very important to them. They were not expecting him to say, you know, these, uh, these kinds of words. All right, so then he moves right on to Joseph. In other words, he doesn't say anything about Abraham bringing Isaac up the mountain or any of that, okay? Stephen is saying some very specific things. So the beginning of the speech is common ground. Abraham, the patriarchs, God made promises, uh, you know, to our people. And now uh, he spends time talking about uh, uh, Joseph. So we read here in verse 9, and the patriarchs, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him. Very important verse. They became, the, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into bondage, yet God was with him. So we see here the beginning of Stephen making this observation that God sends deliverers and we don't like them. Okay? And so now this first one here is Joseph. And he rescued him from all his affliction and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. And a famine came over Egypt and and Canaan, a great affliction with it. Our fathers could find no food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain, when there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there for the first time. Constantly calling the 12 tribes, our fathers, the heads of the tribes, our fathers. He doesn't call them the sons of Israel, like the sons of Israel, our fathers, okay? And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away, he and our fathers. So everybody dies in Egypt, all right? But from there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb where Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, 
in uh, Shechem. We know that the cave of Machpelah is in Hebron, but Joseph was buried in Shechem. By the way, a place that we are going to see uh, on our trip. We're going to be standing on Mount Gerizim, looking right there at Shechem, which is not called Shechem anymore, but we're going to be looking right at it. Okay, and if, and if we look carefully, you see a place called the Tomb of Joseph. Okay, uh, and so it's sort of like taking all of this into one event. And so for whatever reason, Stephen says Shechem. That's where Joseph ultimately is buried. But the point that he's making uh, here is, is that, part, that we come back to the land, that our ancestors are buried in the land. See how important that is? Everybody, I'm telling you that uh, you know, God is faithful to his promise. And then we read, but as the time of the promise was approaching, when God had assured to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our people and mistreated our fathers. Again, our fathers, our fathers, who mistreated them so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born. So now, okay, there's Joseph, a deliverer, whom we didn't particularly care for, right? Now, Moses, God raises up Moses. So he goes from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. This time Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. That's an important phrase because he's being accused of blasphemy against Moses, speaking badly against Moses. So, so far, he has spoken pretty well about God, the land, Abraham, the patriarchs, in the sense that there are patriarchs, but he does say, but, you know, uh, they sold Joseph into slavery, right? But now he's going to move on to Moses. Okay, lovely in the sight of God, nurtured three months in his father's home. Uh, and after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now, they knew this. He's not telling them, this is not like he's telling them about people he never, they never heard of. He's reminding them. He's reminding them about the faithfulness of God in providing deliverers. And as we'll see, as this as this continues, he gets, Stephen gets more and more direct about the rebellion of the people. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting uh, together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why are you injuring one another? Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. Right? And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight and approached more closely. Uh, and a voice came from God. And then he repeats in the next few verses about uh, what we read in uh, Exodus uh, and about the uh, calling and about how God is raising him up to be the deliverer. Okay, But notice what it says in verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and so on. Okay, And so he reminds them again about Moses, but about how they did not trust Moses. They did not uh, believe Moses. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me, uh, from your uh, brethren. This is the one, uh, like you heard from Peter, you know, who is uh, speaking publicly. And so Moses is the one, you know, who promises the ultimate deliverer. But he's the one, remember, who our people 
I actually didn't trust and rejected, but he is indeed the deliverer. And then he has here, this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking with him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Living oracles. This is the Torah. Living or- Doesn't sound like he's speaking against the Torah here. He calls them living oracles, okay, uh, to pass on to you. And then, and our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Okay, so this is the theme of this speech. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do is just say a couple of closing words, and the next week we'll have part two. Uh, part two with a big with a big ending. Okay. But I I do want to say a word about verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Now, if you have a a King James Bible, anybody have a King James Bible, right? Okay, okay. It says the church in the wilderness. That's what it says. But I'm happy to report that I think that's the only English translation actually says that, okay? Um, And then people have gone to town on that, uh, you know? So, uh, needless to say, that is a very bad uh, uh, translation. It is the Greek word ekklesia, which you'll be hearing all about uh, over the next 12 months. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to say like a little word on it, okay? Uh, And that is uh, that in the Septuagint, ekklesia almost always is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word kahal, kahal, which means assembly meeting group, and it's used in different contexts. Kahal in uh, the uh, text of the Tanakh is uh, getting ready, uh, a group who's uh, getting ready for war, uh, the congregation of Israel, uh, you know, the, the assembly of the Lord. It's used in a variety of different ways. In fact, many uh, uh, Messianic, some, I shouldn't say many, uh, some Messianic congregations are called kihilat, uh, kihilat, uh, a congregation, uh, uh, you know, Kehilat uh, Yeshua, or you know, the assembly of uh, Messiah. So uh, there you go. Okay, so he uses uh, this term, uh, the congregation in the wilderness, the kahal in the wilderness, uh, together with the angel who was speaking at Mount Sinai, and I read that. So that's just kind of interesting. In no way, shape, or form is he referring to like the, you know, uh, um, anachronistic way of talking about uh, the church, you know? It's all wrong. It's just all wrong, okay? So that is not what's going on here uh, at all. He's speaking about uh, Kihilat uh, Yisrael, uh, the assembly of, uh, of Israel uh, in the wilderness. But the point is here is that uh, what Stephen is doing is he is answering the uh, questioners, rather than just being at the mercy of whatever they happen to ask. And what he is doing is he is placing the story of the, not only the coming of the Messiah, but even of the rejection of the Messiah. He's placing the story of the rejection of the Messiah in the context of Jewish history, not like this is the end of Jewish history or outside of Jewish history, but part of Jewish history. Because as we'll articulate it next time, but I'll just say it, that what uh, he basically ends up uh, saying at at the end is, things haven't changed. And that is exactly what the prophets said. And we're going to point that out next week. uh, That Stephen uh, is giving this really prophetic message. And just as the prophets were hated, Stephen is hated, Yeshua was hated. uh, It is a symptom. The rejection of the Messiah is a symptom of another problem that began way, way before Yeshua ever came, you see. And we're going to bring that out next week. But let us be encouraged in uh, the way that, uh, you know, we like to say here that we believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, not in spite of being Jewish, but because we're Jewish, because he is indeed the Messiah of Israel. And uh, I'll just close today by saying, don't be surprised at persecution. Yeshua, remember in Luke uh, chapter 21, Yeshua said, this is what it's going to be. It's how it is, okay? There'll be a remnant who will believe, but it it is how it's going to be until the end. 
And so don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you're Jewish here today and, you know, if you have family members and they just, you know, don't want to have anything to do with you or anything. Don't be discouraged, you know. I, uh, God uh, blesses us when we are bold in our message, not arrogant and not ridiculous, you know, uh, but uh, when we're bold and not ashamed of the gospel. And when we know in our hearts that it is indeed the power of God to change our lives, to bring deliverance, we should want to share that message and not, not be ashamed of the message or feel impotent in, in, in the message, right? Uh, and, uh, and I would suggest that uh, when you come back next week and you hear the second part of this, we'll see just how powerful this is and some other marvelous lessons in sharing the good news. And so, again, we see God being faithful to his, Yeshua being faithful to his promise. And uh, that promise is, is that the Ruach would come and empower them to bring the message to Jerusalem, Judea, and now heading toward Samaria. Uh, And so God is faithful then, and he's faithful now. And so may we be encouraged in sharing the good news uh, that the Messiah has come and his name is Yeshua. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you for uh, this, uh, this story of Stephen. Thank you, Lord, uh, for his boldness. Lord, uh, speaking up in the synagogue of the freedmen. And uh, thank you, God, that even when it looks like bad things are happening, what it turns into is a test, an opportunity for testimony. And uh, I pray for us that we would see everything, like 24-7, as opportunities for testimony, Lord. And uh, God, we thank you uh, that you, you were faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph's brothers, uh, Moses, the children of Israel in the wilderness. Lord, thank you, God, and that you remain faithful to us today. We thank you when we pray in Messiah's name.